Hello and welcome back to Bible Beginning to End, where we are reading through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation a little bit at a time. I'm so glad you're here and ready to listen. Last time, we read through 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 12. So spend a moment reflecting on that section, what it was about, what we led up to, and what you think is going to happen in the coming section. 2 Samuel covers the time when David rose to power in Israel. And in the past 12 chapters, we learned about the ending of Saul's era, the emergence of David's monarchy, and we started the section called The Peak of David's Reign. Today, we are going to finish 2 Samuel, reading through chapters 13 through 24. And that will finish the section called The Peak of David's Reign. And then we will also read through the section called The Celebration of David's Reign. I will be reading the New Living Translation if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible or an online version of the Bible. Those are always linked in the description of the podcast episodes. And as always, I will be stopping along the way to ask critical thinking questions, to get your mind going, and to give you time to reflect and meditate on God's Word and hear what He is saying to you about His scriptures. But I won't be offering commentary. This is a time for you to really reflect on the Word of God for yourself and see what conclusions you come up with. So let's get started with 2 Samuel chapter 13. This section is called Amnon and Tamar, and it starts with a chapter that is going to be a tough story to read because it deals with rape and sexual assault. So I just want to give that warning before we read this chapter. So let's go ahead and start with 2 Samuel 13, verse 1. Now David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar, and Amnon, her half-brother, fell desperately in love with her. Amnon became so obsessed with Tamar that he became ill. She was a virgin, and Amnon thought he could never have her. But Amnon had a very crafty friend, his cousin, Jonadab. He was the son of David's brother, Shimea. One day, Jonadab said to Amnon, What's the trouble? Why should the son of a king look so dejected morning after morning? So Amnon told him, I am in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Well, Jonadab said, I'll tell you what to do. Go back to bed and pretend you are ill. When your father comes to see you, ask him to let Tamar come and prepare some food for you. Tell him you'll feel better if she prepares it as you watch and feeds you with her own hands. Okay, so pause there. What kind of advice is Jonadab giving Amnon? Is this good advice or is this bad advice? What do you think about the situation that's going on here? And what about Amnon being so infatuated with Tamar? What is wrong about his love for Tamar? Is he sinning? in this desire that he has. Verse 6. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. And when the king came to see him, 
Amnon asked him, Please, let my sister Tamar come and cook my favorite dish as I watch. Then I can eat it from her own hands. So David agreed, and sent Tamar to Amnon's house to prepare some food for him. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think David agreed to Tamar cooking food for Amnon? Do you think David was aware of Amnon's infatuation with Tamar? Verse 8. When Tamar arrived at Amnon's house, she went to the place where he was lying down, so he could watch her mix some dough. Then she baked his favorite dish for him. But when she set the serving tray before him, he refused to eat. Everyone get out of here, Amnon told his servants. So they all left. Then he said to Tamar, Now bring the food into my bedroom and feed it to me here. So Tamar took his favorite dish to him. But as she was feeding him, he grabbed her and demanded, Come to bed with me, my darling sister. No, my brother, she cried. Don't be foolish. Don't do this to me. Such wicked things aren't done in Israel. Where could I go in my shame? And, and you would be called one of the greatest fools in Israel. Please, just speak to the king about it, and he will let you marry me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. And since he was stronger than she was, he raped her. Then suddenly, Amnon's love turned to hate, and he hated her even more than he had loved her. Get out of here, he snarled at her. No, no, Tamar cried. Sending me away now is worse than what you've already done to me. But Amnon wouldn't listen to her. He shouted for his servant and demanded, throw this woman out and lock the door behind her. Okay, so pause there. I want you to think back to Tamar's response to Amnon when he asks her to go to bed with him. What did Tamar understand about sin and about honoring God that Amnon didn't understand? And then we have this horrible act. And right after, we have Amnon's whole emotional state change. Why do you think his love turned to hatred after he did this? Verse 18. So the servant put her out and locked the door behind her. She was wearing a long, beautiful robe as was the custom in those days for the king's virgin daughters. But now, Tamar tore her robe and put ashes on her head, and then, with her face in her hands, she went away crying. Her brother Absalom saw her and asked, Is it true that Amnon has been with you? Well, my sister, keep quiet for now, since he's your brother. Don't you worry about it. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard what had happened, he was very angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated Amnon deeply because of what he had done to his sister. Okay, so pause there. I want you to think about Tamar. What happened to Tamar as a result of this horrific action taken against her? 
How did her life change because of someone else's choice? Amnon claimed that he loved Tamar, but did he show love toward her? What do you think is going to happen to Amnon, if anything? This is a good time to reflect on love. What is it really? When we truly love people, how should we treat them? How does God treat us? How does experiencing God's love show us how to love others? Okay, so the next section is Absalom's revenge on Amnon. 2 Samuel 13, verse 23. Two years later, when Absalom's sheep were being sheared at Baal Hazor, near Ephraim, Absalom invited all the king's sons to come to a feast. He went to the king and said, My sheep shearers are now at work. Would the king and his servants please come to celebrate the occasion with me? The king replied, No, my son. If we all came, we would be too much of a burden on you. Absalom pressed him, but the king would not come though he gave Absalom his blessing. Well then, Absalom said, if you can't come, how about sending my brother Amnon with us? Why Amnon? the king asked. But Absalom kept on pressing the king until he finally agreed to let all his sons attend, including Amnon. So Absalom prepared a feast fit for a king. Absalom told the men, wait until Amnon gets drunk. Then at my signal, kill him. Don't be afraid. I'm the one who has given the command. Take courage and do it. So at Absalom's signal, they murdered Amnon. Then the other sons of the king jumped on their mules and fled. Okay, so pause there. Why is Absalom seeking revenge on Amnon? Do you think that Absalom is handling the situation in the right way. Do you think that Amnon deserves this punishment? Verse 30. As they were on the way back to Jerusalem, this report reached David. Absalom has killed all the king's sons. Not one is left alive. The king got up, tore his robe, and threw himself on the ground. His advisors also tore their clothes in horror and sorrow. But just then, Jonadab, the son of David's brother Shimea, arrived and said, No, don't believe that all the king's sons have been killed. It was only Amnon. Absalom had been plotting this ever since Amnon raped his sister Tamar. No, my lord the king, your sons aren't all dead. It was only Amnon. Meanwhile, Absalom escaped. Then the watchman on the Jerusalem wall saw a great crowd coming down the hill on the road from the west. He ran to tell the king, I see a crowd of people coming from the Heronium Road along the side of the hill. Look, Jonadab told the king, there they are now. The king's sons are coming, just as I said. They soon arrived, weeping 
and sobbing, and the king and all his servants wept bitterly with them. And David mourned many days for his son Amnon. Absalom fled to his grandfather, Talmai, son of Amahud, the king of Geshur. He stayed there in Geshur for three years, and King David, now reconciled to Amnon's death, longed to be reunited with his son Absalom. Okay, so pause there. How do you think David felt after Amnon was killed? We have a little insight into this, but what do you think the emotions he experienced were? Do you agree with what Absalom did? How do you think Absalom felt in the aftermath of killing Amnon? What Amnon did was a sin. But why wasn't he punished by David or the community of Israel? What repercussions do you think this action will have on the community of Israel in the future, if any? Okay, so now we can start 2 Samuel chapter 14, which is called Joab Arranges for Absalom's Return. Chapter 14, verse 1. Joab realized how much the king longed to see Absalom. So he went for a woman from Tekoa who had a reputation for great wisdom. He said to her, Pretend you are in mourning. Wear mourning clothes and don't put on lotions. Act like a woman who has been mourning for the dead for a long time. Then go to the king and tell him the story I am about to tell you. Then Joab told her what to say. When the woman from Tekoa approached the king, she bowed with her face to the ground in deep respect and cried out, O king, help me. What's the trouble? the king asked. Alas, I am a widow, she replied. My husband is dead. My two sons had a fight out in the field. And since no one was there to stop it, one of them was killed. Now the rest of the family is demanding, let us have your son. We will execute him for murdering his brother. He doesn't deserve to inherit his family's property. They want to extinguish the only coal I have left. And my husband's name and family will disappear from the face of the earth. Leave it to me, the king told her. Go home, and I'll see to it that no one touches him. Oh, thank you, my lord, the king, the woman from Tekoa replied. If you are criticized for helping me, let the blame fall on me and my father's house, and let the king and his throne be innocent. If anyone objects, the king said, bring him to me. I can assure you he will never harm you again. Then she said, Please swear to me by the Lord your God that you won't let anyone take vengeance against my son. I want no more bloodshed. As surely as the Lord lives, he replied, not a hair on your son's head will be disturbed. Okay, so pause there in the middle of this conversation between David and the woman from Tekoa. What do you think Joab is doing here? What do you think the plan is? He told the woman exactly what to say, and so far we've had part of the conversation. So do you have any idea of what the plan is, what's going on? 
how this is all going to turn out. Okay, verse 12. Please allow me to ask one more thing of my lord the king, she said. Go ahead and speak, he responded. She replied, Why don't you do as much for the people of God as you've promised to do for me? You have convicted yourself in making this decision because you've refused to bring home your own banished son. All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. Okay, so pause there. What a beautiful sentiment. What do we learn about God in that speech? What does God do for us? How does God feel toward us? How has God brought you back when you've been separated from him? And what does this analogy that she's making have to do with David and Absalom? Verse 15. I have come to plead with my lord the king because people have threatened me. I said to myself, perhaps the king will listen to me and rescue us from those who would cut us off from the inheritance God has given us. Yes, my lord, the king will give us peace of mind again. I know that you are like an angel of God in discerning good from evil. May the Lord your God be with you. I must know one thing, the king replied, and tell me the truth. Yes, my lord, she responded. Did Joab put you up to this? And the woman replied, My lord the king, how can I deny it? Nobody can hide anything from you. Yes, Joab sent me and told me what to say. He did it to place the matter before you in a different light. But you are as wise as an angel of God, and you understand everything that happens among us. So the king sent for Joab and told him, All right, go and bring back the young man, Absalom. Joab bowed with his face to the ground in deep respect and said, At last I know that I have gained your approval, my lord, the king, for you have granted me this request. Then Joab went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king gave this order, Absalom may go to his own house, but he must never come into my presence. So Absalom did not see the king. Okay, so pause there at the end of that section. Why did Joab come up with this plan in the first place? What did he see in David that caused him to come up with this plan? How did the conversation David had with the woman from Tekoa change his mind? Why do you think that conversation impacted him? What else did you learn about God through that conversation? Did Joab's plan work? 
Absalom was brought back to the kingdom. But then David said that Absalom was not allowed to come into David's presence. Why do you think that is? Why do you think why do you think after David's conversation with the woman from Tekoa, he decided to bring Absalom back but made this condition that they couldn't see each other? Do you think there will be reconciliation? The next section is Absalom reconciled to David. Verse 25. Now Absalom was praised as the most handsome man in all Israel. He was flawless from head to foot. He cut his hair only once a year, and then only because it was so heavy. When he weighed it, it came out to five pounds. He had three sons and one daughter. His daughter's name was Tamar. She was very beautiful. Okay, so pause there. Why did he name his daughter Tamar? Verse 28. Absalom lived in Jerusalem for two years, but he never got to see the king. Then Absalom sent for Joab to ask him to intercede for him, but Joab refused to come. Absalom sent for him a second time, but again Joab refused to come. So Absalom said to his servants, Go and set fire to Joab's barley field, the field next to mine. So they set his field on fire, as Absalom had commanded. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think Joab refused to come see Absalom? He had already devised this whole plan to get Absalom back to the kingdom. But now when Absalom wants to seek reconciliation with David, Joab won't see him. Why do you think that is? And then what do you think about Absalom's plan to get Joab to see him? He's going to set his barley field on fire. Do you think that's the right move? Or do you think Absalom could have gone about it in a different way? Verse 31. Then Joab came to Absalom at his house and demanded, Why did your servant set my field on fire? And Absalom replied, because I wanted you to ask the king why he brought me back from Gesher if he didn't intend to see me. I might as well have stayed there. Let me see the king. If he finds me guilty of anything, then let him kill me. So Joab told the king what Absalom had said. Then at last, David summoned Absalom, who came and bowed low before the king, and the king kissed him. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think at this point David is allowing Absalom to come back into his presence? And then why do you think there's no conversation recorded here between them? What action did Absalom take when he came back to David? And then what action did David take? after Absalom bowed before him. What can we learn in this story about how to approach God? When we've gone away from God and we come back, and really even if we haven't gone away, how should we always approach God? And what promises 
does God give us? How does God treat us in return? We have that unconditional love no matter what. Okay, so now we can move on to 2 Samuel 15, which starts with a section called Absalom's Rebellion. Chapter 15, verse 1. After this, Absalom brought a chariot and horses, and he hired fifty bodyguards to run ahead of him. He even got up early every morning and went out to the gate of the city. When people brought a case to the king for judgment, Absalom would ask where in Israel they were from, and they would tell him their tribe. Then Absalom would say, You've really got a strong case here. It's too bad the king doesn't have anyone to hear it. I wish I were the judge. Then everyone could bring their cases to me for judgment, and I would give them justice. When people tried to bow before him, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and kissed them. Absalom did this with everyone who came to the king for judgment, and so he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. Okay, so pause there. What do you think Absalom is doing here? What do you think his plan is? How do you think the people of Israel feel about Absalom right now? Verse 7. After four years, Absalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron to offer a sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill a vow I made to him. For while your servant was at Gesher in Aram, I promised to sacrifice to the Lord in Hebron if he would bring me back to Jerusalem. All right, the king told him, go and fulfill your vow. So Absalom went to Hebron. But while he was there, he sent secret messengers to all the tribes of Israel to stir up rebellion against the king. As soon as you hear the ram's horn, his message read, you are to say, Absalom has been crowned king in Hebron. He took 200 men from Jerusalem with him as guests, but they knew nothing of his intentions. While Absalom was offering the sacrifices he sent for Ahithophel, one of David's counselors who lived in Gilo, soon many others also joined Absalom, and the conspiracy gained momentum. Okay, so pause there. Does his plan make sense? The things that he was doing where he was saying, if I was judge, I would bring justice. What was his plan there? What was he trying to do to the people of Israel? Why is Absalom doing this? Why is he trying to win favor with Israel and pit them against King David? The next section is David escapes from Jerusalem. Verse 13. A messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem to tell David, All Israel has joined Absalom in a conspiracy against you. Then we must flee at once, or it will be too late, David urged his men. Hurry! If we get out of the city before Absalom arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from disaster. We are with you, his advisors replied. Do what you think is best. Okay, so pause there. How do you think David is feeling right now? What do you think about his reaction to this news? David comes up with this plan, and then his advisors, 
have a response. What is their response to David's plan? What does their response tell us about David? And what does it tell us about how the people who are close to him feel about him? Verse 16. So the king and all his household set out at once. He left no one behind except ten of his concubines to look after the palace. Okay, so pause there. What are concubines? Why do you think David left ten of them behind? Are you confused that David, this man of God, has all of these concubines? We've talked about this many times in the Old Testament. But are these people of God, these leaders that God has chosen, free from sin? And just because something is in the Bible, just because something is recorded in the Bible accurately, does it mean that God approves of the actions that are taken? I'm sure you can think of many examples where the Bible records the historical facts, but it's not necessarily something God approves of, but it is the truth of what happened at the time. Why is it important that the Bible records the truth, even if it's something we shouldn't partake in or something that we should do? Verse 17. The king and all his people set out on foot, pausing at the last house, to let all the king's men move past to lead the way. There were six hundred men from Gath, who had come with David, along with the king's bodyguard. Then the king turned and said to Ittai, a leader of the men from Gath, Why are you coming with us? Go on back to King Absalom, for you are a guest in Israel, a foreigner in exile. You arrived only recently, and should I force you today to wander with us? I don't even know where we will go. Go on back and take your kinsmen with you. And may the Lord show you his unfailing love and faithfulness. But Atai said to the king, I vow by the Lord and by your own life that I will go wherever my lord the king goes. No matter what happens to me, whether it means life or death. David replied, All right, come with us. So Atai and all his men and their families went along. Okay, so pause there. Why was David giving Atai this warning and saying, Go on back, go back to Absalom, stay where you are, don't come with us? Why was he warning him not to come? And then why do you think Atai decided to go with David and the people from Jerusalem? Verse 23, everyone cried loudly as the king and his followers passed by. They crossed the Kidron Valley and then went out toward the wilderness. Zadok and all the Levites also came along carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set down the Ark of God and Abether offered sacrifices until everyone had passed out of the city. And the king instructed Zadok to take the ark of God back into the city. If the Lord sees fit, David said, 
he will bring me back to the ark and the tabernacle again. But if he is through with me, then let him do what seems best to him. Okay, so pause there. How are we seeing David put his faith in God? How is David giving us a little insight into what it means to truly accept God's will? This could be a good time for reflection of your own life. How are you putting your trust in God? How do you trust that God will provide and make his path known and show you exactly where to go? We may not hear from God in the same way that David or the figures of the Old Testament did, but what are the ways that we do hear from God? The true, honest ways that we hear from him. The king also told Zadok the priest, Look, here's my plan. You and Abether should return quietly to the city with your son Ahimaaz and Abether's son Jonathan. I will stop at the shallows of the Jordan River and wait there for a report from you. So Zadok and Abether took the Ark of God back to the city and stayed there. David walked up the road to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered, and his feet were bare as a sign of mourning. And the people who were with him covered their heads and wept as they climbed the hill. When someone told David that his advisor, Athiophel, was now backing Absalom, David prayed, O Lord, let Athiophel give Absalom foolish advice. Okay, so pause there. What is David's posture in this scene? Why is he in this deep state of mourning? What is he mourning for? When David reached the summit of the Mount of Olives, where people worshipped God, Hushai the archite was waiting there for him. Hushai had torn his clothes and put dirt on his head as a sign of mourning. But David told him, If you go with me, you will only be a burden. Return to Jerusalem and tell Absalom, I will now be your advisor, O king, just as I was your father's advisor in the past. Then you can frustrate and counter Athiophel's advice. Zadok and Abether the priests will be there. Tell them about the plans being made in the king's palace, and they will send their sons Ahimaaz and Jonathan to tell me what's going on. So David's friend Hashai returned to Jerusalem getting there just as Absalom arrived. Okay, so pause there. Who is Hashai? Who is that character? What is David's plan? How is he going to use Hashai to gain his kingdom back from Absalom? Do you think David's plan will work? Okay, so now we can start chapter 16, and this starts with a section called David and Ziba. Chapter 16, verse 1. When David had gone a little beyond the summit of the Mount of Olives, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, was waiting there for him. He had two donkeys loaded with two hundred loaves of bread 
100 clusters of raisins, 100 bunches of summer fruit, and a wineskin full of wine. What are these for? the king asked Zeba. Zeba replied, The donkeys are for the king's people to ride on, and the bread and summer fruit are for the young men to eat. The wine is for those who become exhausted in the wilderness. And where is Mephibosheth? Saul's grandson, the king asked him. He stayed in Jerusalem, Zeba replied. He said, Today I will get back the kingdom of my grandfather Saul. In that case, the king told Zeba, I give you everything Mephibosheth owns. I bow before you, Zeba replied. May I always be pleasing to you, my lord, the king. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think David gave Zeba everything Mephibosheth owns? Do you think this was a good idea? Do you think this was wise on David's part? What do you think is going to happen to David? Do you think this is going to come back a good thing that David did or a negative thing that David did? The next section is Shammai curses David. Verse 5. As King David came to Bahurim, a man came out of the village cursing them. It was Shammai, son of Gera, from the same clan as Saul's family. He threw stones at the king and the king's officers and all the mighty warriors who surrounded him. Get out of here, you murderer, you scoundrel, he shouted at David. The Lord is paying you back for all the bloodshed in Saul's clan. You stole his throne, and now the Lord has given it to your son Absalom. At last, you will taste some of your own medicine. For you are a murderer. Okay, so pause there. Why is Shammai saying these things to David? Why is he calling him a murderer? Are these accurate accusations? Or is he yelling false accusations at David? What do you think is going on in this situation? And why do you think Shammai is reacting this way to David? Why do you think he has this anger inside of him? Verse 9. Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Abishai, son of Zeruiah, demanded. Let me go over and cut off his head. No, the king said. Who asked your opinion? You sons of Zeruiah. If the lord has told him to curse me, who are you to stop him? Okay, so pause there. Do you think... What David's saying is true. Do you think the Lord has actually told Shammai to curse David? Why do you think David is reacting in such a calm way to Shammai's outburst? Verse 11. Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, My own son is trying to kill me. Doesn't this relative of Saul have even more reason to do so? Leave him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him to do it. And perhaps the Lord will see that I am being wronged and will bless me because of these curses today. So David and his men continued down the road, and Shammai kept pace with them on a nearby hillside, cursing and throwing stones and dirt at David. 
The king and all who were with him grew weary along the way, so they rested when they reached the Jordan River. Okay, so the next section is called Ahithophel advises Absalom. Verse 15. Meanwhile, Absalom and all the army of Israel arrived at Jerusalem, accompanied by Ahithophel. When David's friend Hushai the Archite arrived, he went immediately to see Absalom. Long live the king, he exclaimed. Long live the king. Is this the way you treat your friend David? Absalom asked. Why aren't you with him? I'm here because I belong to the man who is chosen by the Lord and by all the men of Israel, Hushai replied. And anyway, why shouldn't I serve you? Just as I was your father's advisor, now I will be your advisor. Okay, so pause there. Is Hushai being honest with Absalom? Is he really there for Absalom or is he there to truly help David? Do you remember David's plan and what part Hashai is going to play in this plan? What do you think about Absalom's first reaction to seeing Hashai? Why do you think he's suspicious? And how do you think he's going to react? Do you think he's going to believe Hashai or do you think he's going to see through the plan? Verse 20. Then Absalom turned to Ahithophel and asked him, What should I do next? Ahithophel told him, Go and sleep with your father's concubines, for he has left them here to look after the palace. Then all Israel will know that you have insulted your father beyond hope of reconciliation, and they will throw their support to you. Okay, so pause there. What do you think of Ahithophel's advice? for Absalom to go sleep with all of his father's concubines. Do you think this plan will work? Do you think this is sound, wise advice? And here they predict that Israel will throw their support at Absalom if he does this. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they predict this to happen? Why would... Absalom sleeping with all of David's concubines cause Israel to throw their support at him. Verse 22. So they set up a tent on the palace roof where everyone could see it, and Absalom went in and had sex with his father's concubines. Absalom followed Ahithophel's advice just as David had done. For every word Ahithophel spoke, seemed as wise as though it had come directly from the mouth of God. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 16. What do you think about what Absalom did here? Do you think it was wise or do you think it was foolish? Why would someone, Ahithophel, who was David's advisor and is now Absalom's advisor, why would he give... Absalom, this kind of advice. And why do you think it says here that for every word Ahithophel spoke seemed as wise as though it had come directly from the mouth of God? Let's look back for a second 
at a verse from chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 31 says, When someone told David that his advisor, Ahithophel, was now backing Absalom, David prayed, O Lord, let Ahithophel give Absalom foolish advice. So, how does that verse play into what's going on right now? We have Ahithophel giving Absalom very strange advice, and then we have a verse saying that to Absalom, it sounded as wise as though it was coming from the mouth of God. So, are we seeing God answer David's prayer? Are we seeing God answer David's request? And how do you think this is going to turn out for Absalom? Okay, so now we can start 2 Samuel chapter 17, which is going to continue this story with Absalom and Ahithophel. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now Ahithophel urged Absalom, Let me choose 12,000 men to start out after David tonight. I will catch up with him while he is weary and discouraged. He and his troops will panic and everyone will run away. Then I will kill only the king, and I will bring all the people back to you as a bride returns to her husband. After all, it is only one man's life that you seek. Then you will be at peace with all the people. This plan seemed good to Absalom and to all the elders of Israel. Okay, so pause there. Is this going to be another plan that seems wise to Absalom, but is actually something he shouldn't do? What do you think of Ahithophel's advice? The next section is Hashai counters Ahithophel's advice, verse 5. But then Absalom said, Bring in Hashai the archite. Let's see what he thinks about this. When Hashai arrived, Absalom told him what Ahithophel had said. Then he asked, What is your opinion? Should we follow Ahithophel's advice? If not, what do you suggest? Well, Hashai replied to Absalom, This time, Ahithophel has made a mistake. You know your father and his men. They are mighty warriors. Right now, they are as enraged as a mother bear who has been robbed of her cubs. And remember that your father is an experienced man of war. He won't be spending the night among the troops. He's probably already hidden in some pit or cave and when he comes out and attacks and a few of your men fall, there will be panic among your troops, and the word will spread that Absalom's men are being slaughtered. Then, even the bravest soldiers, though they have the heart of a lion, will be paralyzed with fear. For all Israel knows what a mighty warrior your father is and how courageous his men are. I recommend that you mobilize the entire army of Israel, bringing them from as far away as Dan in the north and Beersheba in the south. That way, you will have an army as numerous as the sand on the seashores, and I advise that you personally lead the troops. When we find David, we'll fall on him like dew that falls on the ground. Then neither he nor any of his men will be left alive, and if David were to escape into some town, 
you will have all Israel there at your command. Then we can take ropes and drag the walls of the town into the nearest valley until every stone is torn down. Okay, so pause there. What do we know about Hashai? What are his motivations? Now, if you are in Absalom's shoes, comparing the two plans, Hashai and Ahithophel, which would you choose? Which one sounds better? Which one do you think Absalom is going to choose, and how do you think that's going to turn out for him? Verse 14 Then Absalom and all the men of Israel said, Hashai's advice is better than Ahithophel's. For the Lord had determined to defeat the counsel of Ahithophel, which really was the better plan, so that he could bring disaster on Absalom. Okay, so pause there. How was God protecting David? How was God active in this situation? Okay, the next section is Hashai warns David to escape. Verse 15. Hashai told Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, what Athiophel had said to Absalom and the elders of Israel and what he himself had advised instead. Quick, he told them, find David and urge him not to stay at the shallows of the Jordan River tonight. He must go across at once into the wilderness beyond. Otherwise, he will die and his entire army with him. Jonathan and Ahimaaz had been staying at Enrogel, so as not to be seen entering and leaving the city. Arrangements had been made for a servant girl to bring them the message they were to take to King David. But a boy spotted them at Enrogel, and he told Absalom about it. So they quickly escaped to Bahurim, where a man hid them down inside a well in his courtyard. The man's wife put a cloth over the top of the well and scattered grain on it to dry in the sun, so no one suspected they were there. When Absalom's men arrived, they asked her, Have you seen Ahimaaz and Jonathan? The woman replied, They were here, but they crossed over the brook. Absalom's men looked for them without success and returned to Jerusalem. Then the two men crawled out of the well and hurried on to King David. Quick, they told him, cross the Jordan tonight. And they told him how Ahithophel had advised that he be captured and killed. So David and all the people with him went across the Jordan River during the night, and they were all on the other bank before dawn. When Ahithophel realized that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey, went to his hometown, set his affairs in order, and hanged himself. He died there, and was buried in the family tomb. Okay, so pause there. I'm sure you weren't expecting that reaction from Ahithophel. That may be a tough moment to hear because of maybe personal experiences you've had, or just sadness when situations like this happen. And that's okay. Sometimes it's good to sit and reflect on whatever emotions might come up reading something like that. 
And if you don't want to listen to more questions about this situation, you can skip ahead a little bit. But for those who feel comfortable reflecting on Ahithophel's story, why do you think he would react this way to his plan not being followed? Why do you think he had such a strong and and devastating reaction? Could it be that he knew what was coming and that he thought if he stayed, he would die anyway? Or do you think it was something else? These are just questions to ask and reflect on. Then we can also talk about the plan that's going on that is unfolding. How did David get the information? What do you think is going to happen? Do you think David will be successful? Verse 24. David soon arrived at Mahanaim. By now, Absalom had mobilized the entire army of Israel and was leading his troops across the Jordan River. Absalom had appointed Amasa as commander of his army, replacing Joab, who had been commander under David. Amasa was Joab's cousin. His father was Jether, an Ishmaelite. His mother, Abigail, daughter of Nahash, was the sister of Joab's mother, Zeruiah. Absalom and the Israelite army set up camp in the land of Gilead. When David arrived at Mahanaim, he was warmly greeted by Shobi, son of Nahash, who came from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and by Machir, son of Amiel, from Lo-Deber, and by Barzillai of Gilead from Rogalam. They brought sleeping mats, cooking pots, serving bowls, wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans, lentils, honey, butter, sheep, goats, and cheese for David and those who were with him. For they said, You must all be very hungry and tired and thirsty after your long march through the wilderness. Okay, so pause there. Does David have people out there who support him? How are they showing their support and protecting David? We're kind of getting to the climax of this story, so what do you think is going to happen next? Do you think Absalom will be defeated? Do you think something will go wrong for David? Whose side is God on? Who has he been protecting and supporting through this? Okay, so now we can start chapter 18, which is called Absalom's Defeat and Death. Chapter 18, verse 1. David now mustered the men who were with him and appointed generals and captains to lead them. He sent the troops out in three groups, placing one group under Joab, one under Joab's brother, Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and one under Ittai, the man from Gath. The king told his troops, I am going out with you. But his men objected strongly. You must not go, they urged. If we have to turn and run, and even if half of us die, it will make no difference to Absalom's troops. They will be looking only for you. You are worth ten thousand of us and it is better that you stay here in the town and send help if we need it. If you think that's the best plan, I'll do it, the king answered. 
So he stood alongside the gate of the town as all the troops marched out in groups of hundreds and of thousands. Okay, so pause there. Do you think this is a good idea? Do you think it's a good idea that David stay behind while his troops go and fight? Why do you think they came to that decision to let David stay behind? Are you surprised that David agreed to it? Verse 5 And the king gave this command to Joab, Abishai, and Atai. For my sake, deal gently with young Absalom. And all the troops heard the king give this order to his commanders. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think David wants them to deal gently with Absalom? Are you surprised that David says this to his troops? What do you think it might look like for them to deal gently with Absalom? How will they do this? How will they treat him? And let's go ahead and make a prediction. What do you think is going to happen in the battle? What do you think is about to happen with David and his troops and Absalom? Verse 6. So the battle began in the forest of Ephraim, and the Israelite troops were beaten back by David's men. There was a great slaughter that day, and 20,000 men laid down their lives. The battle raged all across the countryside, and more men died because of the forest than were killed by the sword. During the battle, Absalom happened to come upon some of David's men. He tried to escape on his mule, but as he rode beneath the thick branches of a great tree, his hair got caught in the tree. His mule kept going and left him dangling in the air. One of David's men saw what had happened and told Joab, I saw Absalom dangling from a great tree. What? Joab demanded. You saw him there and didn't kill him? I would have rewarded you with ten pieces of silver and a hero's belt. I would not kill the king's son for even a thousand pieces of silver, the man replied to Joab. We all heard the king say to you and Abishai and Atai, For my sake, please spare young Absalom. And if I had betrayed the king by killing his son, and the king would certainly find out who did it, you yourself would be the first to abandon me. Okay, so pause there. We have this man who saw Absalom and spared his life, and then he gave his reason. What do you think about his reasoning? Is he telling the truth about David saying to spare Absalom? Why do you think Joab was so angry that this man didn't kill Absalom? Do you think this man's reasoning is honorable? Do you think he's thinking the right things and thinking through this situation in the right way. Verse 14. Enough of this nonsense, Joab said. Then he took three daggers and plunged them into Absalom's heart as he dangled, still alive, in the great tree. Ten of Joab's young armor-bearers then surrounded Absalom and killed him. Then Joab blew the ram's horn, 
and his men returned from chasing the army of Israel. They threw Absalom's body into a deep pit in the forest and piled a great heap of stones over it, and all Israel fled to their homes. Okay, so pause there. Now we have Absalom dying. We have Joab and Joab's men killing Absalom. Did they make the right decision? How do you think David will react to this? Why do you think Israel fled to their homes when this happened? Who do you think was right in this situation, Joab or the man who spared Absalom's life? Verse 18. During his lifetime, Absalom had built a monument to himself in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to carry on my name. He named the monument after himself, and it is known as Absalom's Monument to this day. The next section is David mourns Absalom's death. Verse 19. Then Zadok's son, Ahimaaz, said, Let me run to the king with the good news that the Lord has rescued him from his enemies. No, Joab told him, it wouldn't be good news to the king that his son is dead. You can be my messenger another time, but not today. Then Joab said to the man from Ethiopia, Go tell the king what you have seen. The man bowed and ran off. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think Joab says this statement that it would not be good news for David to hear that his son has died? And also we have Ahimaaz asking Joab to be the messenger. He wants to go and tell David what happened. And Joab says no. But then, Joab tells a man from Ethiopia to go tell David what happened. Why do you think this is? Why do you think he's okay with the man from Ethiopia going, but not Ahimaaz? Verse 22. But Ahimaaz continued to plead with Joab, Whatever happens, please let me go too. Why should you go, my son? Joab replied. There will be no reward for your news. Yes, but let me go anyway, he begged. Joab finally said, All right, go ahead. So Ahimaaz took the less demanding route by way of the plain and ran to Mahanaim ahead of the Ethiopian. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates of the town, the watchman climbed to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked, he saw a lone man running toward them. He shouted the news down to David, and the king replied, If he is alone, he has news. As the messenger came closer, the watchman saw another man running toward them. He shouted down, Here comes another one. The king replied, He also will have news. The first man runs like Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, the watchman said. He is a good man and comes with good news, the king replied. Then Ahimaaz cried out to the king, Everything is all right. He bowed before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise to the Lord your God who has handed over the rebels who dared to stand against my lord the king. What about young Absalom? the king demanded. Is he all right? 
Ahima Oz replied. When Joab told me to come, there was a lot of commotion, but I didn't know what was happening. Wait here, the king told him. So Ahima Oz stepped aside. Okay, so pause there. What's going on right here? Is Ahima Oz telling David the truth? Why do you think Ahima Oz is telling David that everything is all right and not telling him that Absalom has died? What do you think the Ethiopian is going to say? Verse 31. Then the man from Ethiopia arrived and said, I have good news for my lord, the king. Today the lord has rescued you from all those who rebelled against you. What about young Absalom? The king demanded, is he all right? And the Ethiopian replied, May all of your enemies, my lord the king, both now and in the future, share the fate of that young man. The king was overcome with emotion. He went up to the room over the gateway and burst into tears. And as he went, he cried, Oh, my son Absalom. My son. My son Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom. My son. My son. Okay, so pause there at the end of chapter 18. What do you think about David's reaction? Absalom had become a great enemy to David. And yet he reacts with such overwhelming emotion and grief. Why do you think that is? What do we learn about David through this reaction? What do we learn about his character and who he is? What do you think is going to happen? What is going to be the next step now that Absalom has been defeated? Okay, so now we can start chapter 19, which starts with a section called Joab Rebukes the King. Chapter 19, verse 1. Word soon reached Joab that the king was weeping and mourning for Absalom. As all the people heard of the king's deep grief for his son, the joy of that day's victory was turned into deep sadness. They crept back into the town that day as though they were ashamed and had deserted in battle. The king covered his face with his hands and kept on crying, Oh, my son Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went to the king's room and said to him, We saved your life today, and the lives of your sons, your daughters, your wives, your concubines. Yet you act like this, making us feel ashamed of ourselves. You seem to love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that your commanders and troops mean nothing to you. It seems that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died, you would be pleased. Now go out there and congratulate your troops, for I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a single one of them will remain here tonight. Then you will be worse off than ever before. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think Joab reacted in this way? Do you think what he's saying is true? Is it a true representation of how David is acting? Do you think David is justified in his reaction? Verse 8. 
So the king went out and took his seat at the town gate, and as the news spread throughout the town that he was there, everyone went to him. Meanwhile, the Israelites who had supported Absalom fled to their homes. And throughout all the tribes of Israel, there was much discussion and argument going on. The people were saying, The king rescued us from our enemies and saved us from the Philistines, but Absalom chased him out of the country. Now Absalom, whom we anointed to rule over us, is dead. Why not ask David to come back and be our king again? Then King David sent Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, to say to the elders of Judah, Why are you the last ones to welcome back the king into his palace? For I have heard that all Israel is ready. You are my relatives, my own tribe, my own flesh and blood. So why are you the last ones to welcome back the king? And David told them to tell Amasa, Since you are my own flesh and blood like Joab, may God strike me and even kill me if I do not appoint you as commander of my army in his place. Then Amasa convinced all the men of Judah, and they responded unanimously. They sent word to the king, Return to us and bring back all who are with you. Okay, so pause there. What do you think about Judah's reaction to David? Are we seeing God's plan play out? Are we seeing him fulfill promises that he made to David? Okay, so now we can start the next section called David's Mercy to Shammai. As the king was about to cross the river, Shammai fell down before him. My lord, the king, please forgive me, he pleaded. Forget the terrible thing your servant did when you left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind. I know how much I sinned. This is why I have come here today, the very first person in all Israel, to greet my lord the king. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said, Shammai should die, for he cursed the Lord's anointed king. Who asked your opinion, you sons of Zeruiah? David exclaimed. Why have you not become my adversary today? This is not a day for execution, for today I am once again the king of Israel. Then, turning to Shammai, David vowed, Your life will be spared. Okay, so pause there. What do you think of David's reaction? Why do you think he reacted this way? Why do you think he spared Shammai's life? The next section is David's kindness to Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, came down Jerusalem to meet the king. He had not cared for his feet, trimmed his beard, or washed his clothes since the day the king left Jerusalem. Okay, pause there. Why does it make a note of Mephibosheth's physical appearance? It talks about him not caring for his feet, washing his clothes, trimming his beard. What does that signify? Verse 25. Why didn't you come with me, Mephibosheth? The king asked him. Mephibosheth replied, My lord of the king, my servant, Ziba, deceived me. I told him, saddle my donkey so I can go with the king, for as you know I am crippled. Ziba has slandered me by saying that I refuse to come. But I know that my lord the king is like an angel of God, so do what you think is best. 
All my relatives and I could expect only death from you, my lord. But instead, you have honored me by allowing me to eat at your own table. What more can I ask? You said enough, David replied. I've decided that you and Zebo will divide your land equally between you. Give him all of it, Mephibosheth said. I am content just to have you safely back again, my lord, the king. Okay, so pause there. What do you think about this exchange? How did David treat Mephibosheth? How did Mephibosheth react to the way David treated him? What do we learn about David's character in this section? The next section is David's kindness to Barzillai. Barzillai of Gilead had come down from Rogalum to escort the king across the Jordan. He was very old, 80 years of age, and very wealthy. He was the one who had provided food for the king during his stay at Mahanaim. Come across with me and live in Jerusalem, the king said to Barzillai. I will take care of you there. No, he replied, I am far too old to go with the king to Jerusalem. I'm eighty years old today, and I can no longer enjoy anything. Food and wine are no longer tasty, and I cannot hear the singers as they sing. I would only be a burden to my lord the king. Just to go across the Jordan River with the king is all the honor I need. Then let me return again to die in my own town, where my father and mother are buried. But here is your servant, my son, Kimham. Let him go with my lord the king and receive whatever you want to give him. Good, the king agreed. Kimham will go with me, and I will help him in any way you would like, and I will do for you anything you want. So all the people crossed the Jordan with the king. After David had blessed Barzillai and kissed him, Barzillai returned to his own home. The king then crossed over to Gilgal, taking Kimham with him. All the troops of Judah and half the troops of Israel escorted the king on his way. Okay, the next section is called An Argument Over the King. Verse 41. But all the men of Israel complained to the king. The men of Judah stole the king and didn't give us the honor of helping take you, your household, and all your men across the Jordan. The men of Judah replied, The king is one of our own kinsmen. Why should this make you angry? We haven't eaten any of the king's food or received any special favors. But there are ten tribes in Israel, the others replied, so we have ten times as much right to the king as you do. What right do you have to treat us with such contempt? Weren't we the first to speak of bringing him back to be our king again? The argument continued back and forth, and the men of Judah spoke even more harshly than the men of Israel. Okay, so pause there. Why are the men of Israel arguing with the tribe of Judah? Do you agree with Israel's complaint, or do you agree with the tribe of Judah? What do you think is going to happen because of this? Or do you think anything is going to happen because of this argument? Okay, so now we can start chapter 20, which is called The Revolt of Sheba. Chapter 20, verse 1. 
there happened to be a troublemaker there named Sheba, son of Bikri, a man from the tribe of Benjamin. Sheba blew a ram's horn and began to chant, Down, with the dynasty of David. We have no interest in the son of Jesse. Come on, you men of Israel, back to your homes. So, all the men of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, son of Bikri. But the men of Judah stayed with their king and escorted him from the Jordan River to Jerusalem. Okay, so pause there. All of the men of Israel deserted David just because of these words that Sheba said. I'm curious, would he have swayed you? Would this have been convincing enough for you to leave and abandon David? Why do you think everyone in Israel was swayed by Sheba's words? Why do you think they were so quick to abandon David and go follow Sheba? Verse 3. When David came to the palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines he had left to look after the palace and placed them in seclusion. Their needs were provided for, but he no longer slept with them. So each of them lived like a widow until she died. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think this was the fate of the concubines? Why do you think they had to live like widows until they died? And how do you feel about their story? How do you feel about the way they were treated? Verse 4. Then the king told Amasa, Mobilize the army of Judah within three days and report back at that time. So Amasa went out to notify Judah, but it took him longer than the time he had been given. Then David said to Abishai, Sheba, son of Bichri, is going to hurt us more than Absalom did. Quick, take my troops and chase after him before he gets into a fortified town where we can't reach him. So Abishai and Joab, together with the king's bodyguard and all the mighty warriors, set out from Jerusalem to go after Sheba. As they arrived at the great stone in Gibeon, Amasa met them. Joab was wearing his military tunic with a dagger strapped to his belt. As he stepped forward to greet Amasa, he slipped the dagger from his sheath. How are you, my cousin? Joab said, and took him by the beard with his right hand as though to kiss him. Amasa didn't notice the dagger in his left hand, and Joab stabbed him in the stomach with it so that his insides gushed out onto the ground. Joab did not need to strike again, and Amasa soon died. Joab and his brother Abishai left him lying there and continued after Sheba. Okay, so pause there. Why did Joab kill Amasa? What had happened? What had he done to deserve this? Verse 11. One of Joab's young men shouted to Amasa's troops, If you are for Joab and David, come and follow Joab. But Amasa lay in his blood in the middle of the road, and Joab's man saw that everyone was stopping to stare at him. So he pulled him off the road into a field and threw a cloak over him. With Amasa's body out of the way, everyone went on with Joab to capture Sheba, son of Bikri. Okay, so pause there. How did Joab and his men convince these Israelites to go after Sheba? 
Why do you think they decided to be on Joab's side? Meanwhile, Sheba traveled through all the tribes of Israel and eventually came to the town of Abelbeth Maka. All the members of his own clan, the Bichrites, assembled for battle and followed him into the town. When Joab's forces arrived, they attacked Abelbeth Maka. They built a siege ramp against the town's fortifications and began battering down the wall. But a wise woman in the town called out to Joab, Listen to me, Joab. Come over here so I can talk to you. As he approached, the woman asked, Are you Joab? I am, he replied. So she said, Listen carefully to your servant. I'm listening, he said. Then she continued, There used to be a saying, If you want to settle an argument, ask advice at the town of Abel. I am one who is peace-loving and faithful in Israel, but you are destroying an important town in Israel. Why do you want to devour what belongs to the Lord? And Joab replied, Believe me, I I don't want to devour or destroy your town. That's not my purpose. All I want is a man named Sheba, son of Bichri, from the hill country of Ephraim, who has revolted against King David. If you hand over this one man to me, I will leave the town in peace. All right, the woman replied. We will throw his head over the wall to you. Then the woman went to all the people with her wise advice, and they cut off Sheba's head and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the ram's horn and called his troops back from the attack. They all returned to their homes, and Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. Now, Joab was the commander of the army of Israel. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was captain of the king's bodyguard. Adoniram was in charge of forced labor. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilud, was the royal historian. Shiva was the court secretary. Zadok and Abether were the priests, and Ira, a descendant of Jair, was David's personal priest. Okay, so pause there. Let's reflect on how Joab was able to defeat Sheba. Let's talk about the woman who met with him. Who was she? What do we know about her? Did we get a name? Did we get an adjective that described her? What did her actions say about her? Why do you think she was the one who met with Joab? How was she able to convince Joab to save her town and her community? Why do you think her community was willing to give up Sheba? Was Joab successful in his mission that David sent him on? Okay, so now we can transition into the final section of 2 Samuel that starts with chapter 21 and goes through chapter 24. 
This is sort of an epilogue of 2 Samuel, so we will see a few different types of writing styles and a few different types of stories as we read through. So just keep that in mind as we move along into this final section. And this section is called The Celebration of David's Reign. There was a famine during David's reign that lasted for three years. So David asked the Lord about it, and the Lord said, The famine has come because Saul and his family are guilty of murdering the Gibeonites. So the king summoned the Gibeonites. They were not part of Israel, but were all that was left of the nation of the Amorites. The people of Israel had sworn not to kill them, but Saul, in his zeal for Israel and Judah, had tried to wipe them out. David asked them, What can I do for you? How can I make amends so that you will bless the Lord's people again? Okay, so pause there. What's going on in this situation? What is happening to the Israelites? Why are they experiencing this famine? Why are the Israelites and David being punished for something that Saul did? Verse 4. Well, money can't settle this matter between us and the family of Saul, the Gibeonites replied. Neither can we demand the life of anyone in Israel. What can I do then? David asked. Just tell me and I will do it for you. Then they replied, It was Saul who planned to destroy us, to keep us from having any place at all in the territory of Israel. So let seven of Saul's sons be handed over to us, and we will execute them before the Lord at Gibeon, on the mountain of the Lord. All right, the king said, I will do it. The king spared Jonathan's son Mephibosheth, who was Saul's grandson, because of the oath David and Jonathan had sworn before the Lord. But he gave them Saul's two sons, Armani and Mephibosheth, whose mother was Rizpah, daughter of Aiah. He also gave them the five sons of Saul's daughter Merab, the wife of Adriel, son of Barzillai from Meholah. The men of Gibeon executed them on the mountain before the Lord. So all seven of them died together at the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay, so pause there. The first question you might be asking is, why does it say in verse 7 that he's sparing Mephibosheth? And then in verse 8, it says that he's giving them someone called Mephibosheth. Are these two different people by the same name? And then do you think that the agreement that they came to is a fair one? Sacrificing Saul's sons, to pay for what he did. Verse 10. Then Rizpah, daughter of Aya, the mother of two of the men, spread burlap on a rock and stayed there the entire harvest season. She prevented the scavenger birds from tearing at their bodies during the day and stopped the wild animals from eating them at night. When David learned what Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went to the people of Jabesh-Gilead and retrieved the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan. When the Philistines had killed Saul and Jonathan on Mount Gilboa, the people of Jabesh-Gilead stole their bodies from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them. So David obtained the bones of Saul and Jonathan as well as the bones of the men the Gibeonites had executed. Then the king ordered that they bury the bones in the tomb of Kish, Saul's father at the town of Zelah, in the land of Benjamin. After that, 
God ended the famine in the land. Okay, so pause there. Why did Rizpah do what she did? Why do you think she went out to the fields and protected the dead bodies? And then what did David do in response to this action? Why do you think David had the bones moved and buried in the tomb of Saul's father? And then the final verse in this section says that after that, after David buried the bones, God ended the famine. Why do you think God waited until after the bones were buried to end the famine? Why didn't he end the famine once the people were sacrificed? Okay, the next section is battles against Philistine giants. Once again, the Philistines were at war with Israel. And when David and his men were in the thick of battle, David became weak and exhausted. Ishbi Benob was a descendant of the giants. His bronze spearhead weighed more than seven pounds, and he was armed with a new sword. He had cornered David and was about to kill him. But Abishai, son of Zeruiah, came to David's rescue and killed the Philistine. Then David's men declared, You are not going out to battle with us again. Why risk snuffing out the light of Israel? Okay, so pause there. What is this imagery? Who are they calling the light of Israel? And why do you think they are calling this person the light of Israel? Why is it so important to them that they protect him? Verse 18, after this, there was another battle against the Philistines at Gob. As they fought, Sebekai from Hushah killed Soph, another descendant of the giants. During another battle at Gob, Elhanan, son of Jair from Bethlehem, killed the brother of Goliath of Gath. The handle of his spear was as thick as a weaver's beam. In another battle with the Philistines at Gath, they encountered a huge man with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in all, who was also a descendant of the giants. But when he defied and taunted Israel, he was killed by Jonathan, the son of David's brother Shemiah. These four Philistines were descendants of the giants of Gath, but David and his warriors killed them. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think they have this section here about David killing the Philistines? What is Israel's history with the Philistines? What is David's personal history with the Philistines? How did the Philistines and the giants of Gath tie into David's story and how he became king? What are we learning about David in this section? What are we learning about his army? What are we learning about the way he leads, leads and protects Israel? Okay, so now we can move on to chapter 22 which is called David's Psalm of Thanksgiving or David's Song of Praise. Now, you might know that there is a very famous book of the Bible called the Psalms. And David wrote many of the Psalms or songs that you will read in that book of the Bible. So this is an example of that type of writing style. This is an example of that type of 
verse that we will see in the Bible that expresses things directly to God. So keep that in mind as we're reading this chapter. It is one long song, and so we'll stop, of course, and break it up a little bit along the way. But this will be David's song of praise, chapter 22, verse 1. David sang this song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from all his enemies and from Saul. He sang, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my savior. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me, and my place of safety. He is my refuge, my savior, the one who saves me from violence. I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise, and he saved me from my enemies. Okay, so pause there. That's that first little stanza. Let's pay attention to how this is structured as we read it. So how does he start out this song of praise? Who is he giving praise to? What is he saying about God? What is he thanking God for? What are you learning about who God is through this song? Verse 5, the waves of death overwhelmed me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me. Death laid a trap in my path, but in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Yes, I cried to my God for help. He heard me from his sanctuary. My cry reached his ears. Then the earth quaked and trembled. The foundations of the heavens shook. They quaked because of his anger. Smoke poured from his nostrils. Fierce flames leapt from his mouth. Glowing coals blazed forth from him. He opened the heavens and came down. Dark storm clouds were beneath his feet, mounted on a mighty, angelic being, he flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. He shrouded himself in darkness, veiling his approach with dense rain clouds. A great brightness shone around him, and burning coals blazed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot arrows and scattered his enemies. His lightning flashed, and they were confused. Then, at the command of the Lord, at the blast of his breath, the bottom of the sea could be seen, and the foundations of the earth were laid bare. Okay, so pause there. That next section starts out with David reflecting on what? Was he reflecting on a dark time in his life or a positive time in the history of Israel? And then how do you see God rescue him? I really want you to think about the imagery that's used here. What metaphors do you see? What is God compared to? Go back and listen to that section again if you need to, 
And this is something to think about as we continue reading. What is God compared to? And how does that help us understand who God is on a deeper, more personal level? How did you see God's strength in this section? How did Israel's enemies react to this? How did Israel react to this? How does this show God as the leader, an active leader in the community of Israel? Are these new attributes of God that we haven't seen before, or have you seen God attributed this way in other parts of Scripture? Verse 17, he reached down from heaven and rescued me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemies, from those who hated me and were too strong for me. They attacked me at a moment when I was in distress, but the Lord supported me. He led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. The Lord rewarded me for doing right. He restored me because of my innocence, for I have kept the ways of the Lord. I have not turned from my God to follow evil. I have followed all his regulations. I have never abandoned his decrees. I am blameless before God. I have kept myself from sin. The Lord rewarded me for doing right. He has seen my innocence. Okay, so pause there. The first part of this section, we see David talking about how he has been rescued by God. What has he been rescued from? What have you been rescued from? How does God keep you safe? Do you also believe that God delights in you? And then we have this section where David's saying, God has rewarded me for doing well. I am blameless before God. Well, have we seen David sin? What does this section mean? If we've seen David sin, how can he be sinless? What is he talking about here? What do you think he actually means when he's saying these things? How are we seen as blameless? Through the sacrifice Jesus made. Verse 26 To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To those with integrity, you show integrity. To the pure, you show yourself pure. But to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. You rescue the humble, but your eyes watch the proud and humiliate them. O oh Lord. You are my lamp. The Lord lights up my darkness. In your strength, I can crush an army. With my God, I can scale any wall. Okay, so then let's pause and think about this little section. We have some sort of parallels here. 
David says, to the faithful, you show yourself faithful, to the pure, you show yourself pure, but to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. What do you think he means by that? Who is the you in that situation? Is he talking about you, the reader, or is he talking about God? Is he saying, to the faithful, you, God, show yourself faithful, or is he saying, to the faithful, you, the reader, show yourself faithful? Who is the you in this section? And then he calls God the light in his darkness. Where else have we seen someone called a light in a previous chapter? We saw David called a light. So what does it mean to be a light to someone? What does it mean for God to be our light? He also talks about having strength through God. What does that look like in our lives to be strengthened by God? What can we do with God in our lives? Verse 31, God's way is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. He is a shield for all who look to him for protection. For who is God except the Lord? Who but our God is a solid rock? God is my fortress. And he makes my way perfect. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, enabling me to stand on mountain heights. He trains my hands for battle. He strengthens my arm to draw a bronze bow. You have given me your shield of victory. Your help has made me great. You have made a wide path for my feet to keep them from slipping. I chased my enemies and destroyed them. I did not stop until they were conquered. I consumed them. I struck them down so they did not get up. They fell beneath my feet. You have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued my enemies under my feet. You placed my foot on their necks. I have destroyed all who hated me. They looked for help, but no one came to their rescue. They even cried to the Lord, but he refused to answer. I ground them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trampled them in the gutter like dirt. You gave me victory over my accusers. You preserved me as the ruler over nations. People I don't even know now serve me. Foreign nations cringe before me. As soon as they hear of me, they submit. They all lose their courage and come trembling from their strongholds. Okay, so pause there. What are all these things that David is listing that he's done? What has he been able to do? But who does he attribute all these victories to? Himself or to God? Verse 47. The Lord lives. Praise to my rock. May God, the rock of my salvation, be exalted. He is the God who pays back those who harm me. He brings down the nations under me and delivers me from my enemies. You hold me safe beyond the reach of my enemies. You save me from violent opponents. For this, O Lord, I will praise you among nations. I will sing praises to your name. You give great 
victories to your king, you show unfailing love to your anointed, to David and all his descendants, forever. Okay, so pause there. How does David end this song of thanksgiving? How does he praise God? How does he give glory to God? As you read through this, as you heard this read to you, do you feel David's passion? Do you feel his emotions? What emotions do you think David had as he was writing this? What emotions did you experience as you were hearing these words? What can you learn about prayer and how to talk with God through hearing how David acknowledges God? Okay, so now we can start chapter 23, which is titled, David's Last Words. Chapter 23, verse 1. These are the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, speaks. David, the man who was raised up so high. David, the man anointed by the God of Jacob. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks through me. His words are upon my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The Rock of Israel said to me, The one who rules righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is like the light of morning at sunrise, like a morning without clouds, like the gleaming of the sun on new grass after the rain. Okay, so pause there. I want you to reflect on that little section because it used a lot of imagery, a lot of metaphors. So according to this passage, what does it mean to rule righteously? And it says that those rulers who rule in the fear of God are like the light of morning at sunrise. What does that mean? When you think of the light that you see at sunrise, how does it make you feel? What kind of emotions does it evoke? It also says that they are like a morning without clouds. What do you think that simile means? Like morning without clouds. If you walk out in the morning and you look up and there's not a cloud in sight, how does that make you feel? What do you think about when you see a clear blue sky? And then the last simile is like the gleaming of the sun on new grass after rain. So what does that make you think of? When you see the sunlight beaming down on the grass after the rain, there are water droplets covering the grass. What does it make you think of? What do you think he's trying to tell us about a righteous leader through this simile? And then remember as we continue reading this section. These are David's last words. So this is coming to the end of his leadership. So think about the words he's choosing. Why do you think he's deciding to talk about these topics instead of other topics? Why is he choosing this imagery instead of that imagery? Really think about what he's saying and why he's saying these things. Verse 5. 
Is it not my family God has chosen? Yes, he has made an everlasting covenant with me. His agreement is arranged and guaranteed in every detail. He will ensure my safety and success. But the godless are like thorns to be thrown away, for they tear the hand that touches them. One must use iron tools to chop them down. They will be totally consumed by fire. Okay, so pause there. Let's juxtapose this section with the previous one. In the first section, we were talking about the attributes of a righteous leader. This time, David talks a little bit about the godless, and he compares them to a thorn to be thrown away. So what does that simile make you think of? What is a thorn? What does it do? What is this teaching us about those who are without God? Okay, so the next couple of sections will talk about the people David surrounded himself with. So this next section is called David's Mightiest Warriors. These are the names of David's mightiest warriors. The first was Joshubim, the Hakmonite, who was leader of the three, the three mightiest warriors among David's men. He once used his spear to kill 800 enemy warriors in a single battle. Next in rank among the three was Eliezer, son of Dodai, a descendant of Ahoa. Once Eliezer and David stood together against the Philistines when the entire Israelite army had fled. He killed Philistines until his hand was too tired to lift his sword, and the Lord gave him a great victory that day. The rest of the army did not return until it was time to collect the plunder. Next in rank was Shema, son of Aegi, from Harar. One time, the Philistines gathered in Lehi and attacked the Israelites in a field full of lentils. The Israelite army fled, but Shema held his ground in the middle of the field and beat back the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Okay, so pause there and think about the three men who were just mentioned. Do you remember their names? Do you remember who they were? What did each of them have in common that made them stand out among other warriors? Verse 13. Once during the harvest, when David was at the cave of Adullam, the Philistine army was camped in the valley of Rephaim. The three who were among the thirty, an elite group among David's fighting men, went down to meet him there. David was staying in the stronghold at the time, and a Philistine detachment had occupied the town of Bethlehem. David remarked longingly to his men, Oh, how I would love some of that good water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem. So the three broke through the Philistine lines, drew some water from the well by the gate in Bethlehem, and brought it back to David. But he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out as an offering to the Lord. The Lord forbid that I should drink this, he exclaimed. The water is as precious as the blood of these men who risked their lives to bring it to me. So David did not drink it. These are examples of the exploits of the three. Okay, so pause there. Why are these three men so important? 
And then why do you think that the Bible chooses to include this story about David sending them for water? And then when they come back with the water, he doesn't drink it. He offers it as an offering to the Lord. Why do you think this story is included? What can we learn from the story about God, about David, and about these three men? Okay, so the next section is David's 30 mighty men. Verse 18. Abishai, son of Zeruiah, the brother of Joab, was the leader of the thirty. He once used his spear to kill three hundred enemy warriors in a single battle. It was by such feats that he became as famous as the three. Abishai was the most famous of the thirty and was their commander, though he was not one of the three. There was also Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant warrior, from Kabzeel. He did many heroic deeds, which included killing two champions of Moab. Another time, on a snowy day, he chased a lion down into a pit and killed it. Once armed only with a club, he killed an imposing Egyptian warrior who was armed with a spear. Benaiah wrenched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with it. Deeds like these made Benaiah as famous as the three mightiest warriors. He was more honored than the other members of the thirty, though he was not one of the three. And David made him captain of his bodyguard. Okay, so pause there. Think about these two men. They're part of the thirty, but they're not part of the three. What do you think is the difference between these two men and the three that we talked about in the previous section? Why do you think these two are singled out of the thirty, but not a part of the three? What similarities do you see between these two men and the other three? And what differences do you see? Okay, so the final little part of this chapter is just a list of the rest of the thirty men. And so as we read through these, I want you to think about, do you recognize any of the names? Are you curious about any of these men? Why do you think these men are just listed while the other men have stories that go along with them? Okay, verse 24. Other members of the 30 included Ashahel, Joab's brother, Elhanan, son of Dodo from Bethlehem, Shema from Herod, Elika from Herod, Helez from Palan, Ira, son of Akesh from Tekoa, Abizer from Anathoth, Sibakai from Husha, Zalman from Ahoa, Maharai from Natofa, Haled, son of Baana from Natofa, Ithai, son of Rabbi from Gibeah in the land of Benjamin, Benaiah from Parathan, Harai from Nahali Gaash, Abi Alban from Araba, Osmaveth from Bahurim, Eliaba, from Shaalban, the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, son of Shagi, from Harar, Ahim, son of Sharar, from Harar, Eliphalet, son of Ahaspai, from Maka, Eliam, son of Athithophel, from Gilo, Hezro, from Carmel, Parai, from Arba, Eichel, 
son of Nathan, from Zobah, Bani, from God, Zelech, from Ammon, Naharai, from Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, son of Zeruiah, Ira, from Jatir, Gareb, from Jatir, Uriah, the Hittite. There were thirty-seven in all. Okay, so now we can start the final chapter of Second Samuel, chapter 24. And this starts out with a section called David Takes a Census. Chapter 24, verse 1. Once again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he caused David to harm them by taking a census. Go and count the people of Israel and Judah, the Lord told him. Okay, so pause there. Why do you think God is angry with Israel? And why do you think he's asking them to take a census? Verse 2. So the king said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Take a census of all the tribes of Israel from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, so I may know how many people there are. But Joab replied to the king, May the Lord your God let you live to see a hundred times as many people as there are now. But why, my lord, the king, do you want to do this? But the king insisted that they take the census, so Joab and the commanders of the army went out to count the people of Israel. First, they crossed the Jordan and camped at Aror, south of the town in the valley, in the direction of Gad. Then they went on to Jazer, then to Gilead in the land of Tatim Hodshi, and to Danjaan, and around to Sidon. Then they came to the fortress of Tyre, and all the towns of the Hivites and Canaanites. Finally, they went south to Judah, as far as Beersheba, having gone through the entire land for nine months and twenty days. They returned to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of people to the king. There were eight hundred thousand capable warriors in Israel who could handle a sword, and five hundred thousand in Judah. Okay, the next section is judgment for David's sin. Verse 10. But after he had taken the census, David's conscience began to bother him. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly by taking the census. Please forgive my guilt, Lord, for doing this foolish thing. Okay, so pause there. What's going on here? The Lord told David to take a census. He took the census. And now he feels guilty about it? Why do you think David is reacting this way? What do you think God's response is going to be? Verse 11. The next morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, who was David's seer. This was the message. Go and say to David, this is what the Lord says. I will give you three choices. Choose one of these punishments, and I will inflict it on you. Okay, so pause there again. So God asks David to do something, and now he's going to punish David for it? Did God cause David to sin? What, what do you think is going on here, knowing what you know of God, knowing what you know of David? What do you think is actually going on? Verse 13. So Gad came to David and asked him, Will you choose three years of famine throughout your land? Three months of fleeing from your enemies? or three days of severe plague throughout your land. 
think this over and decide what answer I should give the Lord who sent me. I'm in a desperate situation, David replied to Gad. But let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great. Do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel that morning, and it lasted for three days. A total of 70,000 people died throughout the nation, from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. But as the angel was preparing to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented and said to the death angel, Stop, that is enough. At that moment, the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. When David saw the angel, he said to the Lord, I am the one who has sinned and done wrong, but these people are as innocent as sheep. What have they done? Let your anger fall against me and my family. Okay, so pause there. What do you think about God's reaction? About God's punishment here? Why was David punished? Why did David's punishment affect all of Israel? Why did people die because of what David did? Were both David and the Israelites guilty of something? And if so, what were they guilty of? The next section is David builds an altar. Verse 18. That day Gad came to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. So David went up to do what the Lord had commanded him. When Arana saw the king and his men coming toward him, he came and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Why have you come, my lord, the king? Arana asked. David replied, I have come to buy your threshing floor and to build an altar to the Lord there so that he will stop the plague. Take it, my lord, the king, and use it as your wish, Arana said to David. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and you can use the threshing boards and ox yokes for wood to build a fire on the altar. I will give it all to you, your majesty, and may the Lord your God accept your sacrifice. But the king replied to Arana, No, I insist on buying it, for I will not present burnt offerings to the Lord my God that have cost me nothing. So David paid him fifty pieces of silver for the threshing floor and the oxen. David built an altar there to the Lord and sacrificed burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the Lord answered his prayer for the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. Okay, so pause there. How did God end the plague? Why do you think David built an altar at that specific spot? Did something significant happen there? What did we learn about David in this section, and what did we learn about God? Okay, so that is the end of 2 Samuel. I hope you enjoyed this book and this section. I know it took me a very long time to finish this episode, and I apologize for the delay. I'm hoping that this year will be a lot smoother. I have a new job at a different school and it's a lot less stressful on me, and so I have a little more capacity to sort of come home and work on this a little bit at a time. So I'm hoping that that will be better this year. 
And um, next time when we get together, we will be going through First Kings, and we will see at the beginning the end of David's reign, and then the beginning of the reign of the next king of Israel. So I hope you guys will stay tuned and stick around for Second Kings. Thank you so much, and I will talk to you in the next one.